So uh, we are in Second Thessalonians, and I gotta get going because <laughs> there's a lot of material in here. But I have to back up to, to chapter one a little bit because I want to get a good running start. If you remember, we left off last week with Paul writing a second letter to the church at Thessalonica. Is that there was a lot of confusion from his first letter that uh, some of them believed that the day of the Lord had already come and they missed it. And so there's confusion now of what's going on. And I want to back up to this Thanksgiving section in chapter 1 where he's, he's literally praying for them. He's giving them a taste of what he's going to talk about in the body of his letter, which is today. That's the main, we'll try to get through that today, the body of the letter. Uh, but you have to understand the context of this letter. I start in chapter 1, verse 5. It says, it is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment, righteous judgment, that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom, from, for which you also are suffering, since it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief, some translations will say rest, and to give rest. To you who are afflicted along with us. You have to understand the context here is this is a young church. Within the last year, Paul was there in Thessalonica and he told them about Jesus being the Messiah and that people came to know Jesus as their Savior and he baptized them. So they're young. They don't have, they don't have this. Okay, they don't have this. He's, he's written a letter to the church at Galatia. I'm not sure that necessarily got to the Thessalonica at the time. James has written his letter. That probably didn't. They literally are going off the stories that Paul and Silas uh, and Timothy have been telling them about Jesus. That's all that they have in their faith, and he keeps encouraging them to live their life accordingly. And so now he's got this very young church and they're facing all sorts of persecution. You've got people in Thessalonica that don't believe in just one God. They believe in many gods. You have Jews that live there and they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Messiah is going to be something much greater than Jesus is. And so there's a lot of questions about faith and about teachings and about leadership. They're all questioning everything. And you know what that causes? That causes opinions and assumptions to arise. And we all know how that works out, is things are said that probably aren't true. And then those things are developed upon and developed upon and developed upon and rumors start, and all of a sudden, it's a mess. Well, Paul's literally talking about God's judgment and God's wrath, and you think, how in the world, how in the world is this comforting to them in the midst of this? Well, it's that one little statement that he said. It's that one little paragraph, the righteous judgment of God. If you've been heavily persecuted, and we have people in this world today that believe and are persecuted very heavily. 
And there's no way that you can be vindicated from that persecution. So your only comfort is for someone to say, hey, God's got it in the end. It's, that's, that's Paul's words of comfort to this church at Thessalonica. Hey, everything that you're dealing with, it will be vindicated in the end. You realize persecution is relative. We think that as believers, you know, that we're persecuted and we have no idea what religious persecution is in this country. Yeah, we may get some social networking slammed against us and things like that, but uh, what they were experiencing, life and death, persecution is relative. And, and then so is the understanding of vindication. So for them, Paul saying that they would be vindicated was a, was a huge deal. He's literally saying, relax. My, my wife gets excited easily, and I just say to her, relax, and she hates it. Because she can't just relax. And this is what Paul's saying. He's like, relax, rest. God's going to bring you relief. But then, the last part of chapter 1, it says in verse 11, in view of this, we always pray for you that our God will make you worthy of his calling and by his power fulfill your every desire to do good and your work produced by faith. Not by, he didn't say by your own energy, by your own strength, he said by faith. So that the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the great thing is, is Paul... As a Pharisee, he knew the Old Testament. He knew the law. He knew what the prophets taught. And he was literally quoting Isaiah chapter 66, verse 5. Isaiah said this, You who tremble at his word, hear the word of the Lord. Your brothers who hate and exclude you for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified so that we can see your joy but they will be put to shame. He's literally gone back to the prophets and said, hey, this has happened in the past. It's going to happen in the future. That's where he kind of like, he's like, here's some comfort for you. God's judgment, there will be vindication. Just keep doing what you're doing. I'm thankful for you. It's going to be okay. Then he gets into chapter 2, which is the body of the letter, and he begins to answer their questions. This is such a difficult passage to teach. I avoid this, and I avoid revelation. I'll tell you about that here in just a second. A couple of guys, let me quote them. William Neal said this, This passage is probably the most obscure and difficult passage in the whole of Pauline correspondence. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Michael Holmes says, more recently said that this passage is by common consent one of the most obscure in Pauline corpus. <clears throat> We're getting ready to blow through this in about 15-20 minutes. Paul's purpose in this passage right here 
it's not necessarily to provide his readers with a prediction of what's to come in the future. But instead, he really, in a pastoral way, is trying to comfort them, meeting their very real pastoral needs. Paul, just cause of the anxiety to go away. Cause the questions to go away. This next passage is just a glimpse of what Paul taught the church at Thessalonica. He literally says, you, you guys know what I've taught you. I, I hung out with you for a period of time. I taught you every day and everything else. Look, we get one paragraph of what he taught them. Right? We get one paragraph, but they got to hang out with Paul every day, and he's teaching them more in depth and things like that. And we honestly don't have the privilege of knowing what Paul taught the church at Thessalonica. We just have this little apocalyptic, meaning end times, apocalyptic paragraph, and it's not conclusive. Like, we, we can't come to a conclusion on this. We can look to a revelation that's an apocalyptic book that's more expressive, more narrative, and has many more details about the end times than this little paragraph, which brings confusion to us. But there's so much in this little paragraph. I often say this, things that are mentioned once or twice in the scripture, we have a tendency to whisper them. But things that are constantly repeated over and over and over in the scripture, we have a tendency to shout those things. Well, this is one of those things that's mentioned once, and there's a lot of confusion. And so thus the reason I probably whisper it more than I do shout it. Let's look at it. Verse 1. He starts with a crisis, like there's a serious problem. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily upset or troubled either by a prophecy or by a message or by a letter supposedly from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Now let me continue reading the, the next part of that. It says, uh, don't let, no, I'm not going to, I'll get to that here in a second. Sorry. Now, as he said these things, he said three things. He said a prophecy, he said a message, and he said a letter. He said three things. Did you catch that? You have, what you have as a church now is you have prophecy. What's prophecy? The Holy Spirit working inside of you and leading you and causing you to interpret the scripture and to understand things of God. You have the message, the things that Paul and Silas and Timothy told them, and then you also have, you have this letter that Paul's written. You have those three things. Now, none of the things that Paul has said here were supposed to happen when Jesus comes again had happened. They you hear what I'm saying? It's like last week we talked about the things that were supposed to happen. Actually, it was in First Thessalonians a couple weeks ago. We talked about, Paul talked about the things that were supposed to happen after Jesus comes, and they hadn't happened. They literally should have said to themselves, 
Where are the dead who are resurrected? This is 22 years after Jesus was crucified. They should have asked the question, where is the cry or the command of the voice of the archangel or the trumpet of the call of God, which is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? All these things that he wrote in his first letter, those things hadn't occurred yet at this point, yet they're thinking that the day of the Lord has already come and they've missed it. Well, how can that be if he's, these things haven't even happened? Where's the sudden destruction that was supposed to come upon the pagan neighbors in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? We, we can't, you, you, you can't underestimate how strong their, their fear is and, and really how contagious their fear is. You know through this whole COVID thing that fear spreads like wildfire. If just a few people have fear, then it begin, they begin to talk about it. This is exactly what's happened here. It's like, the, what, what was the, the story of Chicken Little? The sky is falling, the sky is falling, and fear just went through the story. So, yes, uh, fear is irrational. You know, fear is, fear and hope is kind of an interesting thing. Fear is basically projecting into the future something negative that hasn't occurred yet. Whereas hope is projecting into the future something positive that hasn't happened yet. So they've literally taken something negative here and they're projecting it into the future. Hey, has this already happened? What about us? So you have to ask the question, what caused this confusion? If they didn't ask these simple questions, what caused this confusion? Why did they think the day of the Lord already came? I say in verse 2, it says, not to be easily upset or troubled, either by a prophecy, a message, or a letter supposedly from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. But if we skip down to verse 15, watch this. He says, so then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught that would be the messages that you were taught. Whether by what we said or what we wrote, that would be the letters. He said, hold fast to the messages you heard and to the letters that were written. What did he leave out? He didn't say anything about the prophecy and the Holy Spirit working in them because, wait a second, it was omitted because he says you need to test everything. If the Spirit is speaking through me right now, speaking through me right now to you, he literally, in the previous letter, chapter 5, says you need to test everything. In Acts chapter 17, the Bereans went back and they checked everything. Does it, does it, it, relate to the 66 books, does it make sense? Because I could be teaching you falsely. There could be false things that came from the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't match up with the Scripture. He literally talks about treating the Spirit and the spiritual utterances. There, there's this danger threatening them of false prophecy entering into what Paul and Silas and Timothy were teaching. In fact, he pretty much exhorts them in the first letter not to, 
naively accept any spiritual utterance. Remember, he says to test all things, hold fast to the good, hold yourselves away from every kind of evil prophecy. So now somebody said, hey, the day of the Lord's already come. And it began to filter. The fear, we, we missed the day of the Lord. How did we miss the day? I didn't hear trumpets. I didn't. It doesn't matter because the fear projected to the future is what they've done here. Now watch this. Let me read this next passage fully to you. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. Here we go. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I used to tell you about this? And you know what currently restrains him so that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with every kind of miracle, both signs and wonders serving a lie, with every wicked deception among those who were perishing. They perished because they did not accept the love of truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie, so that all will be condemned, those who did not believe the truth but delighted in unrighteousness. Wait a second. Verse 13, it says, But we ought to thank God for always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, these chapter breaks in this letter, we're in chapter 2, they really didn't come around until the 12th century. And then when you see the different sections in your Bible, like, we just read one section about the end times, and then we see another one about standing firm and what we've taught. Those sections didn't even come around until the 16th century. They've literally taken these letters and they've divided them up in sections so they might be easier to understand. But when you take what Paul's talking about, the future, the, the apocalyptic part of it, and you separate it from this comfort thing, you totally miss what he's trying to communicate to the people. Again, he's not trying to predict the future. He's trying to comfort them in their thoughts and their fears, and he's taking a pastoral attempt here to calm them. But let, let's go back here to the apocalyptic in verse 3, he says the apostasy. Is this a religious or a political apostasy? I don't know. And does it involve Christians or non-Christians? I don't know. 
verse 3 and 4, and again in verse 8 and 9, he talks about this man of lawlessness. Who's this e evil figure that is not Satan himself? He's some kind of like Satan Superman. You probably have referred to him as the Antichrist. This is John. It's the only time Paul never refers to him as the Antichrist. But who's this super evil dude? And what about in verse 4 when it's talking about the temple of God? Is this referred to the temple in Jerusalem? Or the church? Us being the temple? And if it does refer to the temple in Jerusalem, should we take this passage literally or metaphorically? You see, I'm bringing up all sorts of questions that you ask. Verses 6 and 7, the restraining thing, who's restraining? To, to what and whom does this refer to? A lot of theologians believe it's talking about the Holy Spirit's right now restraining their spiritual battles that are going on around us and the Holy Spirit is restraining these evil forces. And then, verse 8, it talks about the two comings. One is the coming of Jesus. Jesus is mentioned many times in the New Testament, but the other coming, that's coming is this man of lawlessness. How does the one coming, this Satan Superman, relate to the coming of Jesus Christ? Verse 11, the powerful delusion is this the cause of those who rejected the truth of the gospel? Or is it the consequence of those who rejected the gospel? Oh, watch this. This is what, this is what Paul gave us. See that? He gave us this little coloring page. It's pretty descriptive. got a lot of things on it, right? But it needs to be colored because it's just a small synopsis. So this morning, I went back to the kids area and even into the bar area, and I asked some of you to color this picture. And this is what I got. I got Jesus with pink hair and a green smock shirt. I got a purple smock shirt Jesus with gray hair and a brown beard. I got uh, brown hair. It, almost everything's brown. They must not have had very many crayons, but uh, brown and purple. Look at this. Jesus got red hair, like that. There you go. They even colored the lines. He got all these pictures. Paul gave us an outline, and everybody in here has a different opinion of what this should look like. Are you tracking with me? Like, if I take all these things that Paul just mentioned in this paragraph about the end times, which is just an outline, there's no conclusion to it. No one knows what's going to happen in the future. If theologians have taken it, and have colored it, and colored it, and colored it, and colored it, and everybody's picture looks different. 
we have no idea how this is going to play out. We have some idea. Like, literally, you could sit down in this room and ask people's opinions about what they think is going to happen or has already happened. Are you tracking with me? But we just have a small glimpse of it. I could spend weeks taking this through Daniel and Revelation and Thessalonians and trying to figure out, but it's probably just going to cause confusion. You, you got the, the parts there. You got the parts there. I'd love for you to figure it out and color a picture and tell me what it looks like. I'd love for you to do it. You can, you can expect me to stand up here and tell you what the future is like. I'm sorry. Sorry to disappoint you. Probably going to disappoint you one more time today. But here we go. Don't let the these verses, these difficult verses, especially this this paragraph here, blind you to what Paul is trying to do. Paul's primary point is actually very, very clear. The day of the Lord. That claim that the day of the Lord has already come, it's obviously false. That was written in 52 AD. This letter was written in 52 AD. 18 years after that was the, the fall of the temple. Romans came in and destroyed uh, the Jews. This letter was before that time, if you believe that that's a part of it. And it's definitely before today and the things of the future. But again, I believe that Paul is trying to be very pastoral and just comfort these people. Quit panicking about what is going to happen in the future. I would love to take the panic away from you about COVID. It's a real deal, I get it. It's happening. There's statistics, there's but there's all sorts of fear and projections and everything else and I would love to just say relax rest and then verse 13 I go back to it it says but we ought to thank God always for you brothers and sisters loved by the Lord because from the beginning God has chosen some of your translations say elected Paul loved to throw all these complicated things into this one chapter right here. But he's, he was elected throughout 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he never, watch this. He never explains election or chosen. He, you may think that he does because you go back and you put this verse and this verse and this verse and this verse together. And for everybody that does that, there's another side to it. And this has literally split Christians. This one word. Chosen or elect. Did I mean, you, you, have, you have two things here, right? Did God choose some people to have salvation 
and others to not have salvation and be condemned to hell. They believe that God has the ability to make that choice because he's God. Or did God choose the believers because they they chose him out of their own free will and he knew their choice out of his foreknowledge? This is deep stuff. Like from the beginning, from the beginning, Lily, God knew that you were going to love him and choose him as your Savior. Or did he make you to be one of the fortunate ones to have salvation? One seems to be a pretty cruel, cruel God. If that's the case, if we got a 50-50 chance, I guess you know where I line up. I believe that I was able at eight years old, my own free will to say, Yes, I need a savior. That's all I did. It wasn't a prayer. It wasn't magical words. It was just me saying, yes, I need a savior. And Jesus is my savior. And at that point, he gave me faith. He gave me faith. He gave me repentance. He gave me the ability to repent of my sin, which means change my mind about my sin. He gave me forgiveness. Like, complete forgiveness. But I, at eight years old, I didn't understand any of this. I didn't. I just didn't know I needed a Savior. But now, as I grow in spiritual maturity, I see what all He did and every day as I grow spiritually more mature in this, it just, it's the, that's the adventure, that's the, the, the joy of this, is figuring out what I actually have. It's like every day the Christmas gift gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. He gave me, he, he, I had a, I had an old stone heart, he took that heart out, he replaced it with a heart of flesh. It's natural for me to love people, it's natural for me to it's natural for me to love non-believers. And it's because of me loving non-believers that they may come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's evangelism. Me just understanding my identity, that's evangelism. That's a big deal. You see, we can argue that word, choice, election, all day, but again, it's just another divisive thing that, that Paul never really explained. Paul wants them to think of themselves here when he says, you're the first fruits. You're the, fir you're, you're the first ones. You guys, this church is, he's saying to them, you guys, because of how God transformed you and is using you, this harvest is going to be plentiful, but you're the first fruits. You're important. Then verse 15, we'll get right close it up here. He, he commands them, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said or what we wrote. 
You know, to say it differently, the opening problem right here is the church, they were ready for the return of the Lord, but they were not steady at all in what they believed. They were ready. It's kind of like, it's, it's kind of like us. We know this, but do you trust it? You can, you, you can repeat what I say. You can tell people about the gospel, but the question is, is, do you trust this? That's where you step off the ledge. Do you trust this? <laughs> and what did they do? They panicked. They panicked over this false prophetic claim that the day of the Lord had come. So now he's given them a solution. Paragraph 4. He tells them that stand firm in what you've been told. Stand firm in the truth. Know the truth. Trust the truth. And then he closes with this prayer. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God, our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good Hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. In that paragraph right there, he creates this really sharp contrast, a sharp contrast between the doom that's facing them as unbelievers, the unbelievers, and what the Jesus followers are going to experience. There's them, and there's you. Listen to me. I'm repeating what Paul's saying. You will not face a wrath of God in a judgment. How is that possible if Jesus died for all of your sins? And he made you perfect. He made you holy. He redeemed you. He's forgiven you. He, he's made you an heir to the throne. How is that possible that you would face the wrath of God at a judgment? That's literally what Paul's saying here. He's like, hey, the day of the Lord hasn't come, but when it does, you're golden. You're good. Stand firm in what you know. Walk in that. Trust that. Don't panic. Don't worry. Don't fret about it. What do you do? You rest. Rest. And rest doesn't just mean to physically sit here and rest, but rest means understanding that God's given you grace every day to live your life through the ability that he's given you, of him doing it through you. And that's important, what we just read, as a pastor and as a teacher, to bring comfort to you. That, you realize that's what our whole model deal is. You call me and you're looking for some kind of comfort in your crisis. This is all Paul's doing. He's trying to comfort him. He's not trying to predict the future. Yeah, there's all sorts of stuff going out there. The pictures look different. Everything else. But all he's really trying to do is bring him some kind of peace. Some kind of comfort. You already have peace. He's just reassuring. And so, that's what I do. I pray for you. Pray for Bill this week, knee surgery. Pray for Trish's dad for the last couple weeks. 
pray for you, comfort you. Relax. Rest. Trust. It's a crazy world. A bunch of false prophecy out there. Filter it. Read it. Figure it out. It's a real adventure. Father, I pray for my friends here this morning. And I love them as dearly as Paul loved the church. And I just want to see them rejoice with you in the midst of the chaos. The stuff that's going on in this world right now that you would bring comfort, that you would uh, let the peace just rise up in them as they have the spirit within them. I trust you with them. I thank you for your word today. And I pray.